We're going to be in Genesis chapter 9 this morning. We're going to actually start in, in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 20. Before we go to our text and read it, I want to give a little bit of an introduction that I think will help us to, as we approach this. The Bible, as many of you probably know, the Bible is a collection of different books written by different authors that spans centuries. That spans, uh, it covers a period of centuries. So although, although the Bible is made up of different books and characters, what I want us to understand, what I want us to remember is that the Bible is one single redemptive story. It is one single redemptive story. This is what is called a meta-narrative. It is the big picture. It's the big story. It's the overarching storyline over all of these little stories. So ultimately, the Bible is one story by one author, and it is God's story in his own words. And while the Bible is complete, it is closed, you know, uh, meaning we're not adding anything to it, we're not taking anything away from it. God's story of redemption goes beyond revelation. It, it continues beyond revelation. It goes beyond the original hearers, the original audience of Adam and Eve, and beyond the book of Revelation and the first century church. God's story of redemption is continuing today in you and in me. It, it, it goes not just to you and to me, it goes beyond us to our children and to our children's children, to the generations that will come after us. So one of the things this means then is that Adam and Eve's story, Noah's story, the, the flood story, the genealogies and the list, they're all giving way to something. They're all, they're all a step. They're all a brick giving way to something else. Creation gave way to the fall, the fall gives way to the flood. The flood gives way to a family. That family gives way to Christ and to the nations. So all of the distinguishable stories and characters that we see in our Bibles, they are all being crafted together. They are all in the good hands of the great author, Another analogy we could use that, that some of you may find more helpful would be of a baker. A baker. Think of a baker and uh, his ingredients. Those ingredients are all unique. They are all distinct. They are, they are all distinguishable. And some of those ingredients taken by themselves are bitter. And some of those ingredients taken by themselves are sweet. But the baker uses all of them masterfully to make exactly what he desires. He, he uses all of those things masterfully to get to the end result. And when we approach the Bible, we should try to see the meta-narrative. We should try and see the big picture. So in other words, when we go to the Scriptures, we should always look for Christ. We should always try and see the Gospel. And sometimes that can be hard. That can be difficult. 
from, from beginning to end, God is drawing a line to Christ and to, his, and to the consummation of all things. And he wants each generation to get a sense of the scope of that bigger picture. And one of the ways he does this is by leading each generation through cycles of fall and redemption, blessing and curse, bitter and sweet, judgment and repentance. He leads each generation through these cycles. So as we read our text this morning, as we read Genesis 8, 20 through the end of chapter 9, I want you to take note of the cycles and the patterns. I want you to notice the similarities of Adam and Noah. Notice the similarities in, the, in those two men. I want you to take note of the grace and the sin. Take note of the blessing and the curse, the bitter and the sweet. And while we look at the post-flood life of Noah and his family, I want you to keep in mind that their story is giving way to something bigger than themselves. That their story, this particular story, is giving way to something much bigger. Okay, so I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to go to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the grand scope of your story. God, we confess that so often we try and make the scriptures about us by seeing ourselves as the hero of the story. And we confess that we often water down your word to make it merely about how we are to act. Father, would you help us to see with eyes illuminated by your Holy Spirit, your Son, and his gospel in our text this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 28. This is the word of the Lord. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your, for, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and, it, and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off 
by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And I bring clouds when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brother, to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him, let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. So the flood was a judgment. This flood was also a grace to Noah and his family and and to creation, but it did not, and and it really could not, cure the disease. When righteous Noah and his family walked out of the ark, sin walked out with them. When Noah walked out of the ark, sin entered the earth again. As, as, as Noah and his family left the ark, they were walking into a kind of new creation. It, it was a fresh start, a second chance, but the flood was never meant to be a permanent solution. And this is proven very quickly when when we read our text. So it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So here we have a picture of worship. Noah was, Noah, can you imagine, was very grateful to be on dry land again (laughs) after a long time on the ark and a long time building the ark and a long time in the midst of a raging flood and of flood waters that covered the whole earth. Noah was undoubtedly grateful to be on dry land, on dry land again. And so Noah worships God. He builds an altar. He's grateful for being spared from the devastation that he witnessed. So he worships the God who saved him. And we may be tempted to... Uh, to glaze over this part because of the what's going on. The floodwaters recede. 
the destruction is over and and we may be tempted to kind of miss what exactly this is saying here and what it's saying here what it what it's describing here this graphic picture so if i were to say to you tomorrow night we're going to get together and we're going to worship you know you should come when you show up tomorrow night at my house to worship what are you expecting to happen you're expecting us to sing some songs maybe pray but this isn't exactly what Noah does. Noah's worshiping God, but Noah doesn't just grab a guitar and pick out a few songs. Noah takes some of every clean animal and every clean bird, and he systematically slaughters them and lays them on the altar before the Lord to be consumed as a burnt offering. Now, what do you think that should make us think of? What should that make us think of maybe it should make us think of what god did in the garden with adam and eve when adam and eve sinned god and they realized they were naked god killed two animals or killed an animal to make clothes for them perhaps it should make us think of abraham offering up his son on an altar ready to thrust the knife into his son on this offering, on this altar to God. Maybe it should make us think of that. And ultimately, it should make us think of what? Jesus. Ultimately, it should make us think of the cross and the bloody sacrifice that the cross really was. So worship of God is impossible unless we have been forgiven of our sin. We cannot worship God unless we have been saved by God. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And this is why Noah shed blood to worship God and to express his gratitude to God. This is um, the difference between Cain and Abel's offering. Blood. Blood was the difference. Cain brought fruits and vegetables. Abel brought a lamb. The difference was blood. The difference was a reckoning of sin. Noah brought blood to worship God. So because of Christ and his perfect blood, we don't get together for nights of worship that look like that. That would be, you know, kind of odd for us. In fact, now that would be horrible for us. It would be a sin for us to do. Why? Because Christ's perfect blood has been shed. The perfect sacrifice that has been given once and for all time. So we don't offer animals anymore. But instead of animals, we still offer something. We are offering something. And the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in Romans, that we are to be living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. I hope you can get a sense of that, of the irony in a statement like that. Can you get a sense of the irony in a statement like that? You are to be a living sacrifice. You are to be a living dead thing. You are to be a living sacrifice this is a paradox this is a mystery we don't we don't really know how to wrap our minds around something a statement like that i don't think but we are living sacrifices who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb noah's offering here noah's worship here is picturing that we could say that meta narrative he's 
picturing the meta-narrative. He's picturing that overarching reality of Christ's sacrifice, Christ's blood. It's picturing Christ, but it's also picturing Christians. It's picturing Christians who are spared from the wrath of God, who are preserved through the wrath of God to be brought to the other side to be slaughtered, to be laid upon the altar, to be consumed by God. God's response to Noah's worship was a response of compassion. And and it's reminiscent of God's original charge to Adam in the garden. This is one of those patterns and one of those cycles. And we're not going to get into those parallels this morning. They should be obvious. They probably are obvious enough to you. You can see some of those patterns. God is giving man a second chance. He's he's not making a separate covenant. He's giving man a second chance. He's expounding on his one perfect and eternal covenant. So think of it as a link in a chain. A link in a chain. God has made one grand redemptive covenant with mankind, and that's the chain. God, God gives it to Adam, that's one link. God gives it to Noah, that's another link. But it's all one chain. It's all one grand redemptive covenant. The specifics are laid out in various places in the Bible. They're laid out to Adam, they're laid out to Noah, they're laid out to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're laid out to the prophets, they're laid out to the apostles, they're laid out to Moses and and the people of God in in that time. But they are all links in one chain, one redemption. We could think of those covenants as chapters in, in a single story of redemption if we want to go back to that analogy. So God from the beginning has promised one redemption and one redeemer. God has not promised lots of redeemers. God has promised one redeemer. His name is Jesus. So verse 21, chapter 8 says, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. This, is, this, this verse is a play on word. Noah's name means rest. And the word that, uh, that my Bible translates pleasing is, really, is a really not a good translation. It's really a word that means restful. If you're reading, I think a New King James, maybe your Bible says soothing. That's a much better word. Soothing, a restful aroma. So you can think of the wordplay like this. Noah, rest, built an altar, and a restful aroma is what the Lord smelled. Rest, built an altar, and a restful aroma is what the Lord smelled. The restful aroma that God smelled evoked a restful response from God. The offering soothed God's indignation against sin and, and soothed God's wrath. But again, this points us to who? Christ, who would one day come and completely soothe God's indignation against sin, who would finally come and and satisfy God's wrath once and for all time. So God promises to never again destroy the earth with a flood. And right on the heels of that promise, God makes sure we understand that it's not going to be because we get our act together. 
It's, God says, I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. But he makes sure we're clear that it's not going to be because we get it right from now on. Our second chance it, it given, now we get it right this time. We just needed a chance to learn from our mistakes. Now we got it, God. No. God gives a promise to never again destroy the earth. And right on the heels of that, he makes it clear it's not going to be because we are awesome. It's not. It was always by grace and by mercy. It was always a picture of grace and mercy. So God then demonstrates his patience and his kindness to us by promising us that as long as the earth remains, there will be order. There will be summer and winter, seed time and harvest, hot, cold, day and night. So twice in the text, God gives the same command that he gave to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Once in in verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1, and once in chapter 9, verse 7. This repetition, again, speaks to this being a second chance for mankind. That is, the idea of fruitful and multiplying is, is an amazing thing. Consider just for a moment, consider the fact that God could have made lots of Adam and Eves in lots of gardens. He didn't have to create one man and one woman in one garden and say, okay, take it from here. God, think about this. God could have saved lots of families in lots of different arcs, but he didn't. He created one man and one woman and he saved one family in one ark. This this is amazing because this is God showing us that he's given us the responsibility. He's given mankind the responsibility to man and to woman to procreate, to produce offspring, to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, this is a command that is to be understood naturally and spiritually. It's a command that speaks generally to fruitfulness and multiplication. So in other words, you can fulfill this command by working in your garden. You can fulfill this command by working your vocation. You can fulfill this, um, this command in creative expression, in, in art, and in music. But I believe it finds its most obvious fulfillment in marriage. Husbands and wives, men and women, are to be fruitful and multiply. They're, they're to be fruitful and multiply. Now, that, as a little aside, this probably should inform and prescribe not only how we view abortion, but also how we view things like birth control. This is a command. This is a uh, command given to Adam and Eve, to Noah, as to mankind, and says, be fruitful and multiply. So it should inform how we view what our opinion is of birth control. Now, because marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, there is an inherent spiritual aspect to this command. So the command applies to, we could say it like this, the command applies to theological families and biological families. The command is to husbands and wives, to men and women, to be fruitful and multiply. The command is to churches, to theological families, to be fruitful and to multiply. And then God goes on to speak of man's dominion over the animals and over creation. And he lays out his provision I've given you all things. And he lays out his restriction. And specifically, he says, to avoid devouring blood. The command to not eat blood, I don't think is mainly about 
what we eat. I mean, it is. Don't, don't eat blood. But I think it's, it's rather about how we are eating. So uh, think of it this way. Think, picture a lion, how a lion eats. Now think of how we eat. We are not animals. Uh, there's a pastor, his name is Jared Wilson. I like to listen to his podcast. And he says this. He understands this prohibition um, this way. He says, this is a command not to be bloodthirsty savages in how we are to exercise dominion over the earth. And I think he's right. I think that interpretation clarifies why God, right after saying don't eat blood, don't drink blood, Right after that, how, why God goes on to say, to speak about capital punishment, to speak about uh, taking the life of man. So God says this, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man... In his own image. It is the prohibition of um, devouring blood that leads God to speak of capital punishment. So, like it or not, this is what God says. He lays out this principle and he lays it out not just for men, but he lays it out for animals as well, which is, I don't, we don't really understand what, how that works. Capital punishment for animals as well. I'm not sure how that works, but this is what God says. He lays out this principle. And he does this as a means of preserving order. So instead of getting into the ins and outs and getting hung up on a debate about capital punishment, I want to hone in on verse 6. Listen to the last part of this verse. It says, For God made man in his own image. All men are created in the image of God. So whether or not we believe that, or, or how we understand that has immediate weight. It, it has immediate effect on how we treat one another, how we, our attitudes toward one another. We have to understand that when man violates man, God says it's a, is, it is as if man violates God. They are violating the image of God. When we wrong others, it is as if we are wronging God. Man bears the image of God. So our kindness then and our hospitality and our charity should not be withheld simply because somebody is different than us, somebody disagrees with us, somebody is not American or is a different race or a different religion even. When injustice is done to man, whether it's legally done, like think of the days of slavery, injustice done legally. When injustice is done to man legally or illegally, God demands serious consequences. Blood for blood. Instead of, think of this then, instead of devouring flesh and blood, to exert our power and to exercise our dominion, how are we to exercise power and dominion? Now, it's interesting. I think we just came to the table. There's a prohibition here. Don't eat flesh with the blood in it. Don't 
get away from blood. The idea of cannibalism in the Jewish culture is is intense. And this day, the don't blood is off limits. Christ comes, and he comes to receive power and a kingdom and dominion forever and ever. And he receives this power and he receives this dominion. He holds all authority in heaven and on earth. And he offers us what? His flesh and his blood. I think this should teach us something about how we are to receive dominion and power. We, we receive dominion and power not by exerting force or exerting our authority over weaker people or weaker creation. We receive power and dominion by giving it away. By giving it away. In verses 8 through 11, God confirms his promises by making a covenant. Now, notice that the covenant is not just for Noah. It's not just with Noah. It is with Noah, it is with Noah's family, and it is actually with all of creation. So in the same way that Moses was a mediator between God and his people, Noah is a mediator between God and his creation, between God and his people, between God and Noah's family. So both are types and shadows of Jesus, who is the great mediator, who at this point would eventually come, who is still promised. So while Noah is a picture of Christ, he was still a very flawed man. He was a very flawed man. Verses 18 and following let us know that very candidly. Noah had issues. Chapter 9 ends with righteous Noah. Righteous Noah who obediently spent decades following God's detailed commands down to what kind of wood and how to construct the ark. He, he Noah, who was saved by grace from the terrifying and devastating global flood of God's wrath. Chapter 9 ends with that Noah getting drunk and passing out in his tent naked. And dying. The last taste we we are given of this man who walked with God is that of vulnerability and shame. A father scorned by his son, a man lacking self-control. The last image we are left with of Noah is a feeble old man, drunk in his shame, needing to be covered by someone else. Needing to be covered by another. After disembarking the ark, after the flood recedes and the ark lands on the mountain and the door is open and Noah leaves and his family leaves. Noah becomes a man of the soil. He plants a vineyard and this planting a vineyard naturally led to winemaking and the winemaking led to Noah's getting drunk. What we see here is um, the start. We see the beginning of Noah's sinful flaws surfacing. Noah became very drunk and he passed out naked in his tent. Noah's son, Ham, sees his father's nakedness, and he tells his brothers. 
in this culture, seeing someone naked was an extreme violation. Now, think about that when Jesus hung on the cross naked. Noah is passed out drunk, naked in his tent. Ham sees him naked, and he goes and he tells his brothers. So on top of that, instead of covering his father's shame, he uncovered his father. Ham uncovers his father. Ham was supposed to be revering and honoring his father, but instead he's found here gleefully scorning and dishonoring him. The text, the words that, that the Bible uses communicate to us that Ham was gleefully scorning his father. Ham wasn't like, guys, we've got to deal with our father who's naked and passed on drunk in his tent. What are we going to do? It wasn't like that. Ham was gleefully scorning his father. It's unclear from the text whether Ham literally uncovered his father, like he literally took his garment, or if this is figurative, you know. Uh, But either way, Ham's sin was severe. Now, you might be thinking, like I am thinking, what about Noah's sin? Why does it seem like Ham is getting the brunt of the condemnation in this passage? I, I heard a pastor make a good observation about this. He said, Noah's sin was a serious one, but a more serious sin is denying a sinner grace. Let me say that again. Noah's sin was a serious, it was a serious one. It was a serious violation. But a more serious sin is to deny a sinner grace. After Ham told his two brothers, they took the garment and they went into the tent to cover their father in such a way as to not look upon his nakedness. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 17, 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Peter maybe even had this this event in mind when he wrote that we are to love one another above all else. And he tells us exactly why. He says, love one another above all else because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Noah's son Ham was not loving his father. He was hating his father. He was stirring up strife. And at the same time, this does not mean that Noah's other two sons, in covering their father, were shrugging his sin off. They were not sweeping it under the rug. They were not just winking it away. They were loving their father. God, in exhorting us to love this way, is not calling us to ignore or to shrug at sin. God calls us to love one another, to cover to cover one another, not to shrug sin off. And, ah, it's not that big of a deal. The fact that this account is recorded for us in the first place may make some of you wonder why God didn't just cover this. Why did God insist on telling Noah's drunken night story to all generations? The answer to that is because he takes sin seriously, because God loved Noah. Now, 
Remember what I said at the beginning. The Bible's written spanning centuries, written by different people spanning centuries. So Moses wrote Genesis centuries after Noah and the flood. Now think about this. Moses is inspired to write this story, to write this account by God to essentially give us one grim snapshot from what would for us be four lifetimes. Noah lived after the flood 350 years. That, that's similar to four lifetimes for us. And God inspires Noah to leave one snapshot from four lifetimes. And this is it. Noah gets drunk, passes out naked in his tent. That's our picture. Now, why do you think that is? Up until chapter 9, there are no recorded words of Noah, and we can only assume that he has been quietly obedient and unquestionably faithful in his resolve to walk with God. The Bible says Noah walked with God. We can only assume that Noah was silently faithful, silently obedient in his resolve. And so what this can do for me anyways, maybe for you, is to um, make it easy for me to think that this one misstep, this one account, this one sinful failure could and maybe even in my mind should be easily overlooked and forgotten. Come on, God, can't you just cover this? But it isn't. Why not? Why, why does God not just ignore it? Why does God record it for every generation of Christians to remember Noah's drunken night story? Why? Because God loved Noah, because God loves us, because God is teaching us that he uses our sin and our sinfulness to accomplish his purpose. He's teaching us that Noah's story is a part of something bigger. Noah's narrative is a part of a bigger meta-narrative. It's a part of the bigger story, something much greater than Noah, something much more glorious than this. This story, this grim account is giving way to one who would finally redeem men from the curse of sin and death and the devil. And as we will see in the next chapter, death didn't win. Noah's flawed life and and his eventual death gave way to something, to someone. In Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that he was righteous, that he had faith. However, Noah was no different than you or me. He was no different than anyone else in that he fell short of the glory of God. He needed a Savior. He needed grace. Noah's name means rest, but Noah had no perfect rest. Noah's rest was getting passed out drunk in his tent naked. That was Noah's rest. Noah's Rest wasn't good enough. There was a rest that was greater than Noah. God showed Noah this, and he continues to show the world even to this day. 
he gives the sign of the covenant. He gives the sign of the coming rest, the rainbow. Some translations, the New King James Version, I think the NIV uses the word rainbow right here in this text. And this is absolutely no doubt what God is actually showing Noah. He's showing him a rainbow, just like we see today, rainbow. But the text doesn't actually say rainbow. The text actually says bow, bow. And it's a word that means battle bow. It means a taut bow, a bent bow, a battle bow that is aimed and ready. That's the word God uses. I want to give you the sign of the covenant, Noah, a battle bow, rainbow. Now, why might God be using this word? Again, think about it. God could have said rainbow. God could have made up this colorful arch in the sky. God could have called it a rain mark or a rainbow. He could have used its own word there. He didn't. He uses this word, bow, and the imagery that comes with this word. Noah understood this word. Bow, battle, bow, taught, bow. Why does God use that word? Now, remember, this comes, this actually comes right before the account of Noah's drunken night that God told us because he takes sin seriously. So that is actually what the rainbow is about. That's what the rainbow is all about. The rainbow is the symbol of the gospel. So let me explain quickly. You'll always find a rainbow at the conjunction between light and dark between sun and storm. And this speaks to that paradoxical union of sorrow and joy. This, this, this is, uh, the rainbow means wrath and storm, but it also means beauty and mercy. This is a mystery. The rainbow means wrath and storm, but it also means beauty and mercy. The rainbow shows us that the covenantal mercy of God at the same time it shows us with the most vivid imagery that God absolutely is just and his wrath is inevitable. When somebody pulls back a bow and arrow, releasing the arrow is inevitable. It it seems inevitable. That's the picture you're going to release. And this is what the rainbow is showing us. It shows us the beauty of the mercy of God, but it shows us the severity and the inevitability of the wrath of God to come. It's showing us that God does not shrug at sin. The rainbow also shows us how this can be good news for sinners. We are sinners. We are we are deserving that arrow. We are deserving of the wrath of God. But the rainbow shows us how this can be good news for us. So think about it. The bow that God shows Noah, that God shows us at the conjunction of sun and storm is not pointed down to us. The bow is pointed up to himself. God is not naive about man's condition. God knows man's heart is evil. 
God is not confused about what the flood accomplished or what kind of man Noah was. God knew Noah and his family. He knew that they were not going to be the final solution for mankind. He knew that they were going to produce offspring that were going to have the same sin-sick hearts that were heavy in his chest. Noah's chest. He gave us the rainbow to point us to the cure, to point us to the final solution. One pastor put it this way, we are saved from the wrath of God by the love of God as these two attributes of God collided in the agony of Jesus Christ. In that collision, the wrath was satisfied and the love entered into resurrection joy. This is the meta-narrative. This is the overarching story. Noah's story, his bloody worship, the promise and the prohibitions, the covenant, Noah's drunken failure, one son's curse, the other son's blessings, they are all giving way to this good news, this evangelical call for Noah to come and die and find new life. To come and die and find new life. For sinners, with all of our flaws and all of our failures, to come and let them fall by the wayside. To be set free from barrenness and to finally be fruitful and multiply. To have our nakedness covered by a garment of righteousness carried to us on the shoulders of grace and mercy. No more condemnation. And what this means then is that the cross of Christ, the cross for Christ was an instrument of death. But it was more than that. It was an instrument of God's wrath. It was the arrow of God's wrath, or the Bible calls it a cup of God's wrath. For us, the cross is also an instrument of death. The cross does not spare us death. The cross spares us wrath. Paul, in his first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, and verses 9 and 10, he says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would strengthen us to endure. As we make, as, as, you, as we wait for you to make your work plain to us, God, please give us patience and give us peace. Remind us that you have not destined us for wrath, God, when it feels like wrath we are receiving. Remind us that you have destined us to obtain salvation. Remind us that your arrow of wrath was not aimed at us. Rather, in your mercy and in your justice, you took aim at your Son and at our Savior. We did not deserve this mercy, and we do not understand this mercy. We don't understand your ways, but we are thankful for your grace that goes beyond our understanding. God, help us to see that grace more and more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
the charge is this. Remember that your individual story, your narrative, your life is a part of God's meta-narrative. It's a part of God's overarching story. God's grand story. So live accordingly. When, when your time here comes to a close, when it's time for you to exit the stage, do it accordingly. Do it knowing that the story goes on. The story is bigger than you. Center your life in the gospel. Center your life in the gospel. Soak up grace like a sponge so when you are pressed, when you are cut, when you are bruised, you will bleed grace. When you fail, when you wake up naked and drunk in your tent, you will not despair. You will run to a redeemer. You will cling to his grace. So remember the rainbow and remember your redeemer. Amen? Please stand and receive a blessing. If you'd like, you can raise your hands. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Go in peace, church.